And welcome to another edition of the Beervana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Patrick. Interesting wind up there. You're giving a little off-speed stuff. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to, trying to <laughs> mix things up here. Keep it lively. It's been quite a while since our last podcast. That's really my fault, so I'll apologize. In fact, I was just thinking, I don't think I've actually even seen you since the last time we pod did a podcast, which would have been about four weeks ago, right? That's probably true. Uh, you've been so busy when I texted you. Uh, at some point, you couldn't even text. You were so busy. Yeah. And you, it was, uh, you just put me off. Yeah, unfortunately, my... Too busy to text. That's very yeah. busy. Unfortunately, my my moonlighting gig uh, has kind of blown up and gotten in the way of podcasting. So my apologies to everybody. But um, but we're podcasting on the morning after the Cubs finally won the World Series, so that's got to mean something, right? That's right. Big big news in the sports world. Go Cubbies. Go Cubbies. I have to admit, growing up in Madison, Wisconsin, the Cubs were one of those sort of teams, kind of like the Dallas Cowboys, sort of everybody liked the Cubs. WGN at the time, for you old folks, you remember when broadcast television stations like WGN would have wide reach and they would always show the Cubs. So I always disliked the Cubs, um, but I was pulling for them last night. Well, as people who know me know that I often wear a Red Sox cap and the Cubbies are composed largely of old Red Sox discards. Well, maybe not largely, but it's Theo Epstein's, Theo Epstein's uh, team. That's right, John Lester pitched. John Lester, Lester pitched and uh, Ross caught and Lackey's another guy who pass through Boston. So um, Francona was on the other side. So yeah. a Red Sox fan was going to be happy either way. It would have been fun. Either team has been a long time. Yeah, uh, My dad grew up in Boston. In fact, a short walk from Fenway Park. And he grew up in a time in the early 50s when he he would talk about how the players would come home from practice and they he had a park across the street and they would stop and play catch with the kids before the big media era where they couldn't wow. they can't go anywhere and so he was talking about playing catch with ted williams <laughs> so he was just the biggest red sox fan you can imagine them when they finally won it felt cathartic won, but almost sort of like a new era had started so um there's yeah. nothing nothing left to live for i guess for you cubs fans that's it's right. over now. You can... That's right. The lovable <laughs> losers. That you're yeah, you have your identity. Exactly. Your identity is completely gone. It's completely changed now. So yeah. welcome to the new World Cubs fans. Uh, By the actually, way, fun fact. Yes. Uh, the, when the Cubs last won the World Series, the Austro-Hungarian Empire ruled part of Europe. Oh, yeah. I saw you, uh, I saw you tweeted that. That was, a, that was a good stat. Things have changed. Things have changed slightly since the Cubs last won the World Series. But now we're in a new era. Everything is possible again. That's right. Uh, Let's not talk about the election. Thank goodness the election is going to be over soon. I don't want to talk about it. I just want it to be sober. And please, let's get on with our lives. Politics divides and beer unites. That's yeah, so let's, let's talk about beer. So uh, you're listening to the Beer Vana Podcast. Jeff Allworth is my co-host. He's the author of the Beer Revival from Workman Publishing. He also wrote a book called Cider Made Simple from Chronicle Books. Uh, on the table next to me are the page proofs of his next book. Secrets of the Master Brewers. No, the Secrets of Master Brewers. I always the the article. I never know where to put it. <laughs> uh, look for it soon. If and you're at the page proof stage, it's got to be coming pretty soon. That's right. Uh, from what uh, publishing? story publishing. Story publishing. And if you're a fan of the podcast, you can look at the dedication and, and see some resonance there. Oh, I haven't. You know, I'll have to dig through your your page proofs here. Uh, you also blog at Beervana, of course. You uh, write for All About Beer magazine. And uh, blog at All About Beer Magazine. That's true. Uh, you are. Yes. You are Patrick Emerson. I am. Uh, who works at Oregon State University and yeah, these days, lives there. Although these days, uh, I'm rethinking that decision. <laughs> uh, go yeah. ahead. And you're the 
sort of chair, but you don't get that name of the sort of department, which is no longer a department. So you're you're suffering some kind of Kafkaesque hell over there. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I'm the program coordinator for the economics program, which means <laughs> that I'm sort of in charge of everything and responsible for nothing, or maybe responsible for everything and in charge of nothing. I don't know. One of those. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's right. And I'm also uh, a research fellow at the uh, Center for Applied Microeconomic Research Research um, at FGV in Sao Paulo, which is... I'm where thinking, you'd like to be right Yeah, now. exactly. <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> I'm thinking it might be a good alternative job at the moment. Uh, yes. And I never blog, but I do have a blog called Beeronomics. Right. You do yeah. tweet, although less during this chaos. But Yeah, I've almost done nothing about anything. Um, by the way, we're part of the All About Beer on air. Sure. That's yeah. what I'm calling it. I don't know if it's what they're calling it. So uh, you can find us through the All About Beer magazine, through their little host of podcasts, All About Beer, which um, uh, All About Beer on Air, which includes us and John Hall's podcast. And I think they're planning to do a like a weekly roundup of news or something like that. I don't, I, I, I'm not sure if they got that started yet. Sweet, I've been a little bit busy. <laughs> I'm, I'm so I'm so out of it. I don't know what we're doing, but I do know that we're making a podcast right now. We're going to get it up, and it's going to be on iTunes, and everything's going to be great again. That's right. Uh, okay, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um, today we're going to do one of our deep dives into beer styles and one of the great beer styles in the world. Uh, we're going to look at uh, one of the most interesting and frankly weird styles in the beer world, uh, the spontaneously fermented lambics made in the area around Brussels. Uh, and in fact, in a future podcast, we'd like to discuss how this tradition has inspired a number of American breweries to take up wild brewing, uh, which will be interesting. But today we're going to go to the source, talk about lambics, uh, and um, uh, taste some lambics, in fact. That's right. we got a couple here in front of us. Um, and yeah, the, the, the idea for this podcast came out of an, an, an inspiration to, to talk about American brewers mm -hmm. using wild yeast. But you can't talk about that until you talk about this first. So we got to talk lambics. Okay. So today we're going to talk all about lambics, and then in a future podcast, we'll talk about the American uh, spontaneously fermented beers that are popping up. But of course, before we do that, we have to turn to the beery news of the world. Uh, so why don't you get us started? All right. <clears throat> I'm not sure that I'm that you're as all interested in this as I am, but I'm fascinated by Brexit. And in the weeks that we've been off, uh, there were two stories that caught my eye, uh, in which the there's a war between uh, re, uh, between uh, companies and retailers. Mm. Companies want to uh, re raise the prices of imported goods and retailers want to keep them low yeah and the reason they want to raise the price is because uh the uh, value of the pound, pound is dropping has taken a dump yeah. and so they need to get their their money out of it uh, and we saw this story with uh, marmite which is a favorite of yours and, <laughs> and ben and cherry's ice cream um, and they finally sorted it out i think but long ago when brexit passed we wondered what it, the effect might be on beer and i think this is actually one of those things for american beers going to the uk uh, we could see fights like this also, and and then the the price, uh, the relative price of American beer going to the UK is now going up because of this. Yep, exactly. Right? Yeah, because of the exchange the exchange rate movements, uh, it means that imported beer in in Britain will likely uh, uh, the price will likely increase. It also means that British beer abroad should be more uh, available or or cheaper. Excuse right. me. Um, so it sort of works. It works both ways. Uh, Marmite's interesting because. When we were touring around Britain, we were we learned that all of these yeast 
refuse from the brewing process would be turned into uh, marmite. Marmite, if you don't know, is a yeast extract spread that you put on bread if you're really insane, mm-hmm. <laughs> like my dad, who <laughs> loves this stuff. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, uh, sorry, I should be more explicit. My stepdad, who's English, not my uh, not my biological father, who's from Boston. Um, now we got that clear <laughs> since I mentioned both. <laughs> uh, uh, so I'm surprised that actually isn't imported because I always think of it as... Yeah, I don't know what the deal is with that. It's it's, inter- maybe it's an international company. It's a global, so. global world. You can get yeah. yeast extract everywhere now. Uh, but yeah, so so the exchange rate, you know, this is sort of typical. Uh, when 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 the currency devalues, that means that imports are expensive and exports are cheap. Uh, so for the British brewing industry, it means they might find more access to the markets. They might get increase their sales abroad. Which is cool for us. Which is cool. For consumers, it means that imported beers, especially if you're an enthusiast and interested in trying import, uh, imported beers, will become more expensive. Right. Uh, so it's interesting with the Brexit. Apparently this morning there was this big uh, yeah. court case judgment that now the parliament has to weigh in on the Brexit. Right. So we'll see very interesting days. Um, relitigate that whole thing. Uh, for the record, I don't support the Brexit. So. <laughs> uh, my my sister, by the way, who lives and works in London, um, was made redundant almost immediately after the Brexit. She works for uh, architect. She worked for an architecture firm that uh, has many contracts in Europe, continental Europe. And so when the Brexit happened, uh, they reduced their workforce. Well, luckily, she landed on her feet. She got a even better job oh. quickly after. But uh, it was interesting how quickly firms have moved to um, uh, to respond to the Brexit. Right. So these things matter. Uh, elections matter, and they affect public policy, and they affect you at the grocery store. That's right. They even affect beer. Yeah. Let's see. What else do you have here? After big expansions in Berlin and Virginia, Stone laid off 5% of its workforce. It blamed a slowdown in growth on being squeezed between the small breweries and conglomerates. Ah, familiar theme for us. Yes, um, that's true. There's, there was also from fumbling you right. The newly formulated, reformulated stone pale sold poorly and was discontinued. Yeah. Oh, I didn't notice that. So they tried to... They re, yeah, they reformulated their old pale, which goes back, I think, to the 90s, tried to update it. And I think this, this is a perfect kind of everything about this story interests me because mm-hmm. um, you, you do find that these, these breweries that are big enough to be competing head to head with with uh, multinational conglomerates mm-hmm. don't still have. They're big, but they're not big enough to have the efficiencies of scales the very big breweries have. Mm-hmm. They're also not competing with the super expensive small breweries that are selling it at tap rooms, selling cakes for a lot of money to other bars. Um, they have to sell, you know, stone to keep up its three hundred fifty thousand barrels has to sell in the grocery store. Yep. So they're they're trapped here. Well, it's also for me. It's a fascinating comment on the craft beer market, the demand for craft beer, which uh, apparently still values novelty. Um, in other words, uh, the bigger brewers like Stone, uh, our next thing we'll talk about how Boston beer's down and Sierra Nevada and Wood- Woodmere, they all have scale economies now where you can usually find those beers for a little bit cheaper than the other craft beer, uh, but they're not as novel. These are the old beers, old brands. And so people are clearly choosing new sort of novel beers and willing to pay an extra buck or two for them. And the interesting thing, this other part of the Stone story, is they're ca- these big breweries are caught between these two other things. They've got their old flagships, which sell a lot of beer, mm-hmm. and they've got the novelty curve. So Stone tries to update an old beer, an old yep. flagship, and it fails. So that, that takes a big hit on their, you know, because that beer was going to be selling a lot of 
barrel. So mm-hmm. these are the, the conundrums uh, middle-sized American breweries are facing. Yeah, I mean, I think IPA is the, is, the, is the poster child for this. IPAs are usually, in American craft brewing, the flagship brand. So you come out with a big IPA and then you flog it. And it's usually, I mean, a lot of craft brewers we've talked to will say it's 75% of their sales or or maybe it's a pale ale. But uh, but the style has changed so so quickly that you can either keep flogging the old IPA and it gets stale or you try to update the IPA and you lose some of your own customers. Right, which is a huge number of people. It was a huge number of people and have basically built your company. So you're really kind of stuck. And for a long time, uh, the response in my mind was to keep pumping out specialty one-offs. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to be the way that these guys worked for a while. Um, I don't know if it's just me, but my perception is that's a little less uh, common now and now they're trying to rejigger their lineups and kind of change around their core beers a little more yeah that we should actually have a, a, an entire pod on the economic <laughs> the changing economics of the mm-hmm. craft beer industry maybe get a, a few people who know something about it uh, offer some advice I, it does seem like one thing you're seeing these middle-sized breweries doing is uh, releasing seasonals or, or one-offs that are pretty close to the core lineup, so different IPAs, different pale ales, different session IPAs. Right. And if they they hit, then boom, they go into the the big lineup. But they're right. not they're not gambling on stuff like, uh, you know, uh, pineapple gozes as right. much. Right. Yeah, I think Deschutes is a good example of one that keeps sort of coming up with a little bit new, different pale ales or IPAs, and right. then eventually they kind of morph into sort of a standard part of their standard lineup. I'll just jump to the last. Yeah, it's related. Since it's related, which is that big craft breweries are seeing large declines in volume. Widmer Brothers is down 19% this year, although their Kona brand is up. Yeah. Uh, Boston Beer is down 6%. Sierra Nevada uh, Pale Ale is down 6%. Torpedo is down 9%. Um, so those are declining. Uh, but overall, craft is growing, and it shows the way that the middle middle guys are getting squeezed, just as you said. So I'm gonna, I'll, I'll sort of leave it with this one thought, which is um, restaurants are an infamous industry in which there's a lot of churn because mm. you come and there's a lot of novelty and you're kind of a new thing and it's very hard to keep a restaurant going for a long period of time uh, because there's always new ones and you just sort of, you get stale and you're trying to innovate. Um, there's also often talk about how sort of kitchens, sort of the energy that's in a kitchen is hard to keep up. But uh, but I wonder if craft beer, because of because of the amazing variety and archipelago of little brewers is is going to end up being an industry like that where there's just a lot of natural churn it's hard to keep a brewery going for 10 20 years mm. um and if it's sort of time to kind of shut down the one and start something new i don't know that's another strategy that i don't know if anyone's tried yet it's just just close a brand and start a new brand that is a fascinating idea we should definitely have a podcast podcast on this stuff this is i think i follow the industry pretty, pretty closely and i know that among industry watchers and people inside the industry, this is the ball game right now. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Okay, so let's let's turn back to our main topic, which is uh, lambics. Um, and um, I'm just a passenger here because you're the expert, and I honestly know almost nothing about lambics. So educate me, Professor Allworth. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, let's get started. I am happy to. Uh, Say what I know. The lambics, I think, are, are uh, one of the most interesting beer styles, and one of the products from the lambic uh, called Gers is, uh, in for my mind, maybe the most uh, accomplished product in the beer world. So yeah. these are things that I really love. So let's start out a little bit, um, just to 
tiny history and overview of what these things are. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're beers that are made uh, with spontaneous, they're wheat beers made with unmalted wheat that are uh, spontaneously fermented, which is to say uh, no yeast is pitched. So uh, we'll talk about that process uh, in, a, in a little bit. Uh, but it's an old style. Uh, it may not be quite as old as people imagine, but it's probably hundreds of years old. Okay, so I'm going to stop you for a second. Yeah. It's made with wheat, but not entirely wheat. Not entirely wheat. Okay. Yeah. So I, it's got malted barley, and then it's got a bunch of wheat. Unmalted, because yeah. I say if you know how All unmalted wheat, that's that's going to be a challenge for those yeasties. Right. Okay. Uh, and it... Um, so it has been made... It, it's made in and around the... Uh, uh, Brussels area, uh-huh. a place called Peatenland um, in the Seine Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of this is identifying the same region. And, and really, uh, hundreds of years ago, when Brussels was much smaller, some of these producers were in the countryside in what is now urban Brussels. Uh, okay. So there's this place called Charbeek. Charbeek. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a region now of Brussels, and it was where they got all their cherries for their creeks. Uh-huh. And you can go, and there's a big cathedral there I, I took a photo of it it was pretty cool because it's like where all these famous cherries came from and there's it's an urban, urban <laughs> now. so uh, this but this is the region that these uh beers come from and they have been historically made uh pretty similarly like there's this guy named Georges Lacombre who wrote in the mid 1800s about the brewer beers being made in in Belgium at that time mm-hmm. and uh his description of of Lambic looks pretty much spot on to what what they're it's the house still, they're still making it so uh let's so turn. let me let me just ask yeah. you a quick question um so these are spontaneously fermented meaning that the yeast and yeast are not i always want to say they're fauna but they're not they're um yeah i got somebody tagged me on this <laughs> i think that's what i remember yeah so i was about to say I, I thought every I thought it was binary. You were either flora or fauna. I know I was going to say so the category. local flora, but but that was my point, which is that uh, it's of a particular region. And what does the what is the region like? You mentioned cherry trees. Um, so where what is the environment in which the yeast live that then become the, the well, yeast that inoculate the spear? Yeah, it turns out that there's wild yeast everywhere, and, sure. and even as recently as twenty years ago. Uh, most people imagine that you could only make these beers in this region. Right. But it turns out that's not true. And we yeah. see this because everybody's making wild beers all over the world. Uh, but this region was historically a fruit growing region. Okay. Yeah. And that uh, was one of the sources of uh, attracting wild yeast. So that was kind of a big thing. It's really changed now. Cantium, which is one of the breweries mm-hmm. uh, making these beers that everybody knows, uh, is also kind of in downtown Brussels. It's not right on the Grand Place, but it's it's in an urban area. It feels just mm-hmm. like in the middle of the city. So right. they're opening their uh, their doors to ferment their beer, and they're just getting city air in there, and it makes fine beer. So yeah. the thing is, and we're actually going to hear Frank Bone talk about this a little bit, about where to site your brewery to get the, the best microflora ah, and fauna and whatever the other category is, my, microbiology uh, mm-hmm. going. Um, but uh, I think we're learning more and more that these things are really specific. You know, you, you, I don't know any, if you can't say large geographical region, like, you know, Belgium is a good place to do it, but Germany's not. There's probably places even a mile away, uh, which are, will be better or worse depending on where you site your brewery. So. Right. Right. But yeast are attracted to things like fruit trees because there's sugar around. Is that the idea? Or? That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. Saccharomyces are the sugar fungus. So they, mm-hmm. they gather on the skins of fruit, uh, okay. waiting for it to rupture so they can get in there and yeah. do their business. 
Oh, that's exactly what I assumed, but I was worried about being really stupid. No, making you nailed it. So I'm good. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so these beers, um, let's talk a little bit about how they're made. They're really fascinating beers. Mm-hmm. So everything is about the microbiology. These right. things are made um, through the microbiology. So the entire uh, process really is a way of, of uh, creating a, a, a substrate for the yeast to work and then an environment, right. once the beer is made, an environment... Mm-hmm. For them to live in and, and flourish so the first thing the breweries do is they create this thing called a turbid mash mm-hmm. and the turbid mash is a weird kind of uh, uh, process that you don't I, I think everybody now or it's dawning on people you don't have to go through there are other ways to prepare a mash that will accomplish the thing same things but historically in belgium mm-hmm. uh the tax man taxed based on the size of the mash tun uh, not the production of the brewery but the size of the mash tun so of course everybody had really small mash tons right. so it forced them to go through this really convoluted long process of <laughs> packing it totally with malt and then filling it with as much water as it would fit in, draw that off, and just keep doing it over and over and over again because you got to get all the sugars out and it takes forever because your grist to water ratio is terrible. The economist in me would say, see, incentives matter. I think I might use that example in my class. Yeah, uh, it's a perfect example. Um, And it's cool that we still, uh, Lambic makers still do it this way because it is a a little bit of the the lineage that goes through. It goes all the way back to that. They're no longer taxed like that. No, they're no longer taxed like that. But so now it's, it's become a fixture. Tradition. Yeah, exactly. A fixture mm-hmm. of tradition. So you got to stick with it. And we're going to listen to uh, Frank Bone talk about the turbid mash that he uses. And he's a scientifically oriented guy, and he believes they're still really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but the main thing, so turbid means cloudy, um, mm-hmm. milky kind of. And these mashes are designed to uh, create uh, nutrient-poor but dextrinous and starchy worts. Okay. These are really these two, these are the two key things, and I think we're going to learn as as the decades roll on that you can make these mashes in different ways. But these you still will always want these two qualities. Mm-hmm. The reason you want poor nutrients is because nutrients feed microbiology, mm-hmm. and you the this process, even though it cultivates the activity of my, microorganisms, yeah, you kind of want to keep them like at a low roar right, right too much and it's bad yeah. then you end up with vinegar and poisonous bacteria and just terrible stuff right so nutrients feed that so you keep those low mm-hmm. and you want starches and dextrins in there which are hard to digest and normal yeast wouldn't be able to digest them mm. but you're you're subjecting this to so many different little creatures that you need to have all these different kinds of uh, starchy and protein protonated bits in there so that they can uh-huh. It can feed them over the years that it's going to take to develop this beer. Uh, so, um, in in Belgium, they do this long process of creating a turbid mash, and it it looks a little bit like decoction. They put, mm-hmm. which is goes back to that old period. They put in uh, put in some water, pull out part of the mash, boil it, put it back in. It goes back and forth. It takes hours. It's right, really long and and laborious. Um, but it but it's a the lambic traditional lambic baker makers believe it's really important to prepare the wort. Uh-huh. Um, so there, we're going to listen to two uh, informants today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Bone, whose name is spelled B O O N, and whose name is not actually pronounced Bone. It's something in between Boone and Bone. It's like mm. Boone. Boone. Yeah, but I can't pronounce Clank it that bun. way. <laughs> Boone. Uh, and the other person is uh, Cantillon's Jean Van Roy, which mm-hmm. is like Van Roy from the French, I think. We're going to stick with Van Roy. Um, 
and he will tell us some stuff uh, down the road. But this first person we're going to listen to is is uh, Frank Bone talking about uh, the Turbid Mesh. Okay, let's listen. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's a puzzle because it's, all, it's, a, it's a question of... Uh, the sugar question is, uh, yeah, is there, but it's not uh, the, 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 main, uh, okay. the main point. It's uh, the important in every very good... in every beer, uh, if you look at the proteins, uh, that is, that is the, the question, the right things you do with proteins. I see. And, and that is uh, the turbid mesh system fits. Uh, very well for uh, for this type of beer. Okay. You must imagine that all the um, um, that wild yeast or other grease yeast they need amino acids and they need other stuff, um, not only sugars but also amino acids. Uh-huh. And so they need these uh, these uh, proteins, but they need the right uh, parts of it and convert it to the, in the right way. Right. And so um, and we want to make uh, a mash for a beer that, that we'll have to keep for many years. Right. So if you don't make it the right way, you will quickly have, after uh, seven, eight months uh, of flavors, it also the, the same type of flavors you find in, in top fermenting beers, uh, uh, of flavors from the aging. Right. Think about uh, cardboard flavor, mm-hmm. mushroom, mm-hmm. or potato, that's and what you're saying old about cellar, the- and then things like that. So, so the turbid mesh system is not the solution, but it's a part of the solution to make a beer that, that keeps that improves while it's aging. So, uh, there you have it. Um, the we're going to get to the. Uh, microbiology in a little bit but the really the thing here is it's extremely complex and yeah. uh there's all these kinds of things in balance um so you need to do all these steps to prepare the wort so that's what he's talking about there uh once you have the wort uh you boil it for many hours with old hops which is kind of a funny thing by the way when you're doing this turbid mashing do they just have a a system they always follow to the letter or are they sort of evaluating the process that goes along and adjusting based on what they observe? No, they, sense? yes, it does. They, they, it's really precise. And okay. in fact, when I was at uh, bone, Frank bones brewery, he was getting a new state of the art brewery installed. He had this old, really old crude one that was made with, that had uh, cast iron, uh, a mash tun, which was mm-hmm. pretty amazing. It dated yeah. back to the 19th century, and he he didn't he hated it because it was imprecise. And and yeah. his his view is the brewer's role is to do everything in an incredibly pre- precise way right. to prepare the wort for right. the things that you can't control later. Right. And he has made a very big study. He's working with the University of Leuven to look at the microbiology that happens. And what he, what he's trying to do is figure out a way to make it as 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 uh, consistent as possible for these kinds of beers right um, and he even has this malt prepared at a f- certain specifications for this kind of beer so oh. it's yeah good okay. question um the beer the wort then goes into the boil and uh usually one year old is a minimum for the hops and the idea here is you don't want uh, a lot of the bitterness to come out but the hops have uh i i would never have guessed this but the antimicrobial stuff stays intact oh. uh, even when the bitterness leaves huh. so uh, the long boil uh, coagulates the proteins and extracts those antimicrobial uh, 
agents from mm-hmm. the hops. So the hops perform a pretty valuable thing here. And again, it's one of those like controlling the wildness. So you, you want to have uh, the, the hops in there for that reason. And how, how, how much hops? This is a good question. I never really uh, inquired uh, pounds per barrel, mm-hmm. which I probably would do. But would you, uh, are the beers, you described them as lightly hopped? <clears throat> in terms of IPA, uh, IBUs, you're not going to find very many at all, right. lower than 10. Um, but because they're aged, I think the, the, vo- the hop volume might be kind of high. They, they tend to uh, age low IBU hops to begin mm-hmm. with, like Hollertau, one of those kind of low right. to begin with. So they don't really don't want a lot of bitterness mm-hmm. in these styles. Um, and then the fun happens. So then the beer goes, the wort uh, goes from the kettle into the cool ship. And the cool ship is a big wide pan uh, that is situated in someplace in a brewery where it's going to be able to get the uh, uh, outside air coming in. Uh, Lambic Brewers brew between roughly like late, late October, early November through uh, April, March, April, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in Belgium, they wait until it gets freezing at night. That's the that's the moment they start doing oh, this okay. because the idea is you want the temperature to drop the uh, uh, the temperature of the wort pretty fast, uh-huh. um, but not so fast that it it so you want to hit that sweet spot where all these wild yeasts and bacteria will come in and flourish, but not too much, uh, but not you, you want to get them in there. So so this 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 beer is still entirely seasonal. It's entirely seasonal. And I asked Jean Van Roy about this, and he said, yeah, the season is shrinking. I look at the brewing logs from my grandfather's time, and uh, they were getting about two weeks earlier, and they were able to brew two weeks longer. And so in the off-season, they just brew other beers where they they inoculate it with uh, cultivated yeast? Well, or they just stop brewing. Yeah, they just stop brewing because these beers take forever to brew. Yeah. So you actually, most of your stock is sitting in barrels somewhere. Right. So right. You, you know, you, you that's the bottleneck. It's not really the amount of production that you can do in your in your brewery. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get I get that, and I get you can sell it year round. But yeah, it's weird to have this brewery that basically shuts down during the warm season. Yeah. This is this is actually totally historic. Back uh, before refrigeration, mm-hmm. all breweries stopped in the summer. And many, oh. many countries and, and, and uh, uh, cities said had laws against brewing in the summer because oh. you made putrid beer. Oh. So this is a, actually a recent thing that you could brew year-round. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, so in that cool ship, uh, it will sit there. It will go from boiling until uh, in the morning if it's a right around freezing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be between 64 and 68 degrees. And are the cool ships there like... Well, I've seen one um, locally, which at block 15, but it looks like sort of, I don't know, a, a queen size bed sized pan that's what, like a foot deep? And Yeah, they're bigger in Belgium. Okay. Uh, Nix is a little bit smaller. They're probably about uh, maybe 15 feet wide and maybe 25 feet long, something like that, mm-hmm. but a foot deep. So, about a foot deep, so yeah. you just expose the, the huge amount of surface area you're right. exposing to the air. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and like at Cantillon, um, he's got a room. It's at the top of the brewery, uh-huh. so there's a little loft up there, and he's got. It's just the the room itself is is a cool ship room. That's all that's in there. Mm-hmm. And he's got these little louvers on the windows that he okay. opens up at night, and the wind comes all in. the air yeah. comes in, and so do the yeast. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so you leave it overnight, and then in the morning, uh, when it's about sixty, somewhere in that. 65 degree range, which brewers will recognize as a pretty good range for 
uh, yeast, you know, regular yeast to, to go. You want it, you don't want it to be too cold. Yep. Um, then they put that into the uh, barrels. And okay, so that's be, it. So it's one night. Yep, one night, overnight. Okay. Um, we'll get to Americans. Americans do this a little bit differently. <laughs> this is why I wanted to talk about this one first because yeah. it's these are like everybody in the beer world who has studied these things took this as received wisdom. This right. is the only way it can be done. Right. And um, turns out, it turns out that when you fiddle <laughs> around and you're not bound to this long tradition, you find out other things. Right. Uh, so we won't. I don't want to. That's a tease. Yeah, it's, it's a, a tease. good tease for an upcoming no, podcast. Don't want to tip our hands, but, um, <laughs> but it's but there are other ways to do this. But this is the the traditional and the uh, the way that they do it there. Right. Uh, so then we uh, then we go into the microbiology, and the microbiology is a super fascinating little dance, and we can talk about that. But I'm wondering if maybe we should. We got a couple of these in front of us. Maybe we should crack open our first one. Oh, good idea. Oh, you know what? <laughs> Wait. We're doing. I did it again, man. I blew right past. Uh, <laughs> I blew past the. I, I'm assuming you want me to edit this part out. <laughs> no way. You know what? This is this is our thing. Uh, we got to go back to the cool ship because we have a nice um, another nice thing from Frank Bone talking about the brewery location, and this goes oh, yeah. back to your earlier question. And um, how, you know where where if you want to get good healthy yeast into your beer. Where should you cite your brewery? Yeah, that was my original question. So yeah. let's let's find out. Frank Bone has the answer. So if your brewery is on the top of the hill, you will always have uh, less wild yeast. Is that because wind is blowing? And uh, temperatures in the night, uh -huh. and difference in temperatures in the night, and and wind also. So um, I know, if, if you look at it from another side, the the old English books will tell you. If you want to build a new brewery, put it on the top of the hill and, and make your openings of your cellars uh, from the north. Eh? All right. So, if question to, to of keep the, if the you keep the out. bugs out. Eh? <laughs> See, so if you if you put it close to to the river. And uh, I don't see the openings from the south. But <laughs> <All right. laughs> no, but if you put it close to liver, liver, you will have more yeast, much more wild yeast. In so many ways, lambic brewing is the opposite of other brewing. Other brewing is modern brewing is really designed to keep wild yeasts out of the the brewery. Like yeah. that, just every almost everything you look at in a brewery is yeah. is designed that way. And so it's funny. This is the reverse. And it speaks to the point I was talking about, where you just brew a lambic brewery is a lambic brewery and you don't when the off season happens you don't just turn around and start brewing other stuff there right I yeah guess. that's right uh frank bone does brew a couple of other beers mm -hmm. but basically nobody's ever even heard of them and they're only sold locally <laughs> are they good yeah they are he makes he makes an original beer that was uh, from the region called uh, it's a duval beer before the other duval mm -hmm. spelled slightly differently it's a dark beer it's interesting mm -hmm. all right let's let's try before we talk about the microbiology let's yes, taste please. the microbiology <laughs> yes. so we've got a we've got a Gers girardin 1882 here this is uh, uh, we're going to talk about what what constitutes an ode Gers and the appellations and uh, some of that stuff. Yeah, he mentions, by the way, aging. So how long do these typically age? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the typical thing. This one is slightly atypical. It's got a slightly different, uh, younger range of uh, blends. This has got 12-month, 18-month, and 24-month. Uh, so between a year and two years blended. And the idea with these blends is that you want the old beer, which is going to have a very bretty 
leathery, mm-hmm. like all that stuff. It'll be still and stale. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a little bit younger lambic, which will have express a little bit more of the uh, uh, younger flavors of um, some of the esters will still be intact, and, right. uh, but it'll be refined and, and more finished. And then the young young stock will give the beer effervescence, and I'm hoping those are going to be really violently effervescent. They often are. Keep uh, it away from my computer, man. <laughs> it might, yeah, that's right. That'll that'll be ruin the podcast. <laughs> ruin the podcast, and it's not a headache you need in your current state. That's right. Uh, and it also has some. Uh, it, it has really estery kind of character, so young, raw kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you have these three blends together nice. that come from the blends come from different batches of beer, but they also come from different vintages of beer. So you have all these layered flavors. So let's try this and see what we got. Yeah. Let's do Oh I think it's gonna have a nice cork. Yeah. Ah beautiful. That's effervescent. That's the sound effects we So definitely effervescent. I'm building a giant head here. It's going to impede our drinking it. I put it in a tulip glass, which is inappropriate. Oh, is that right? Well, I mean, how do, I they, should, how I, do they drink it there? And... They have these wonderful little glasses that are they're like tumblers, mm-hmm. but the bottom part is kind of pleated. Mm-hmm. They have these little. They're really classy. They're rustic. Um, they're they're cool. So this is very sort of straw orange. Yep. Color. Um, very effervescent. Ooh. Mm. Got a lot of weird, funky flavors. So these... Um, I just took a sniff. I haven't tasted it yet, but it's got a lot of esters in the nose. Yeah, and it's got that old... The old stock you can really scent in the... There's kind of a musty barnyard mm. taste. It just tastes like a cellar almost. Or it smells like a cellar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which gives... I, I think maybe that's an acquired taste. Maybe that's like Limburger or something, but um, I love that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's very subtle on the nose, so you, it just commingles with the, with the esters and, um, and sort of the weedy, whoops, sorry, the weedy uh, scent as well, so. Mm. Mm. So these are often considered... Uh, Sour beers, you'll hear people call them sour, but it's not exactly right. Wow. They have a layer of acidity, but they have so much more going on. There's um, um, a dry, uh, almost almost bitter, but more like rind-like bitterness mm-hmm. that you get yep. uh, from the old stock. Uh, there is a little bit of the acidity left, but there are also a bunch of fruity top notes going on. Yep. What are you, what are you finding in there? Yeah, I agree. I sort of have this sort of uh, citrusy sour, acidic sour that's going on. One thing I learned when I was in Belgium. Taking another test from. Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of sort of, I don't know. Yeah, you described it leathery, barnyardy sort of under taste, but that's really subtle. Yeah. And then there's this sort of esters kind of dancing on the tongue. Typical, we've talked about this recently because we've done some of these more complex beers, but a really interesting beer to drink because there's so much going on. When I was in Belgium uh, doing the research for the book, I drank a bunch of lambics right in a row. And I, it was when I had my big epiphany uh, about the beers that at that time we were really still calling sour ales. Mm-hmm. 
And that is that none of these beers were in any way uh, assertively or objectionably sour. Yeah. They're all really balanced. And I can't, they have a, a distinctive flavor palette that's unusual. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anybody would find them overly sour. They're, they wouldn't say, I can't drink it, it's too sour. They might say, that's funky. I don't like it. It's got weird flavors. It, t- it tastes like a cellar and a fruit basket blended together. Um, and I don't like that. But they wouldn't say it's it's like hard to drink, painful. Yes. No, I, I agree entirely. It's kind of like, um, you know, it has a little snap, like, well, I don't know, not overly sugared lemonade or something like mm-hmm. that. It's not objectionable at all. It's quite it's quite nice. They're really refreshing beers, mm-hmm. and I love to drink them on hot days. They they satisfy quite nicely. What's the alcohol content typically, and what are we drinking? They're pretty low. Uh, this one is five, mm-hmm. and I think that's really typical. They're nice. somewhere they're they're brewed fairly uh, low, and they, they can't you you can make them stronger. And I know that uh, Cantillon has some stronger stock, but yeah. um, I think typically they were pretty low alcohol. Yeah, uh, you know that that would have been. Uh, Back in the day, strong beers were not as common in Belgium because they were harder to make. So a lot of beers were lower alcohol than they are now. Yeah, and for, I mean, especially considering the American counterparts, for what is, in the U.S. at least, a a bit of a small beer, it's got an incredibly complex and a really full mouthfeel, and mm, that's really good. Yeah, and the effervescence is the one thing that there's, you can have straight lambic. uh, uh, It's not made very often because... One barrel of beer is never going to produce the kind of complexity you can get. Uh, and one of the things that's so nice about this is you get the old stock, which has that stale quality, but it's so effervescent. It's very lively in the mouth. Yeah. You know what just pops in my head is that the, we're talking about the sourness. It's like the sour. It, it's, it reminds me very much of the sourness you get in grapefruit juice. Mm-hmm. And there's a really grapefruity quality. Really grapefruit there. quality. It's really coming on my tongue now. For yeah. a while. Just sitting there in the back. It's, it's not, I love grapefruit juice. So I like it. And it has that same thing in grapefruit, that kind of bitterness that tanniny mm-hmm. whatever that is yep. i don't know what that is but yep. yeah it's yep. very much like so that. that was i was trying to get at that with my lemonade comment but it's really not it's really grapefruit juice that's yeah, why yeah. That's, that's, and not not grapefruit like american hops but grapefruit like grapefruit yeah exactly like real grapefruit juice like that kind of that kind of dry tongue you get when you drink grapefruit juice and that sort of that sweet and sour sensation yeah <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about how that happens uh, microbiologically because it's super fascinating okay um and we have two great quotes coming up but i want to just give some of the science the science is we know a lot more about the science now um and it's super fascinating and and i'm going to talk about it in school but uh, for the brewers of these beers and i've talked to americans who have the same kind of thing there's a mystical element because it's out of the hands of the brewer. Mm-hmm. And so they often talk to these things about these beers kind of mystically. And, and the two quotes we have up coming up from, from Frank and, and Jean are, are very cool quotes. But let's go to the, the really hard science before we get to the mysticism. Okay. Um, what happens in the, the, the life cycle of a, of a uh, lambic is there are these yeests called apicula yeasts. Uh, mm-hmm. These also same thing that happens in cider. They act; they're one of the very first actors, and they begin an alcoholic fermentation. Um, the same time, Enterobacter is active. Okay, and Enterobacter people will recognize as a spoilage organism, and in almost every other thing, Enterobacter is terrible, and in most brewing, Enterobacter is terrible. <laughs> you don't want Enterobacter, but it's actually really important in lambics because it creates precursor 
compounds that mm. will be converted later on and mm. give these beers some of their complexity. And people say, if the enterobacter is not uh, not well, if it's not in balance, if it's too little or too much, it's it's terrible. And uh, so, does that mean that if you try some fermenting wort too early, that it's going to just taste horrendous? They do taste pretty bad. I tasted uh, <laughs> Frank. Frank gave me some like two month old, and it was really far out stuff. It it, it didn't taste spoilagey, but yeah. it was weird. It yeah. was uh, it was very rough. It was very f- insanely fruity, hmm. but it was also interesting. It had it did have some weird harsh sourness and some other stuff going. So the on. esters are going crazy. But the also esters, yeah, the other stuff is going crazy too. Yeah. Uh, and the enterobacter is inhibited by alcohol, so it's uh, only active for a little while because the apiculate least yeast will get it up to a percent or two of alcohol. And I think that's enough to kill the enterobacter right. or, or impede it. After that, the Saccharomyces, the regular yeast, uh-huh. uh, kicks in and we'll go through a lactic fermentation. Uh, and this is, we're talking about the first few months here, maybe right. maybe before three months. From three to six months, uh, Pediococcus is active. And this is uh, a bacterium. <laughs> Uh, which is probably, again, not one of those things you don't want anywhere near your beer. Right. But here it's really important because it creates lactic acid. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, the first layer of acidity that we're going to get in the beer. And the lactic acid is super important uh, because later on, the Brettanomyces, the wild yeast, will become active. Mm-hmm. And they will convert those acids into esters. Uh-huh. And the esters are uh, really important um, components of the the flavor profile the finished product yeah. yeah so some of the i think some of the grapefruity stuff that we're getting are mm-hmm. converted uh lactic acid into these bretonomyces esters wow so it's interesting that is fascinating boy what a lot's going on yeah <laughs> i wonder what at what point did they figure this all out there there have been some studies i asked frank bone about this mm-hmm. there's one really famous study that was published and it it shows all the different things and when they come in on this flow chart and i right. said you know, I've seen this thing. He said, oh, yeah, I've seen that thing. Uh, <laughs> and it, it was when he was talking about doing his work with Leuven. And I said, so have you done the same process? And you looked and is it the same? And he said, yes, we have done it. And no, it's not the same. <laughs> <laughs> and then I became very interested. And he said, yeah. nope, 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 we're not going there. Yeah, so Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Um, while it's in the pedio stage, it mm-hmm. will sometimes, the lambic will sometimes become what it's called a sick and that's because the appearance that it takes as the <laughs> lactic acid is forming will create, it will coagulate and oh. create a ropey appearance. Wow. And it'll look kind of like slimy and ropey and gross. So sick. Yeah. Um, when the cold weather comes, the yeasts will begin to reabsorb that. Mm-hmm. I think it's the yeast that gets reabsorbed into the beer. Yeah. And then the brett comes along. And sometimes the brett will form a pellicle, which is this hairy fungal thing on top of the beer, which also is unsightly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like not, not wanting to know how the sausage is made or not seeing how that's the sausage right. is made, right? Yeah, it looks, these things, they, they look terrible. Um, but of course, they, they end up they great. End up I mean, cheese, I'm sure, yeah. looks, any fermentation is going to look terrible. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, after about a year, the brett will have. Uh, have had six months or so to work on those esters. And that's really when you consider, like one-year-old lambic is considered complete. It's considered like it's gone through the life cycle and then it'll only mature after that. So that's why when you're blending grows, you tend to look at uh, one year as as the lowest amount. Um, They will age uh, typically up to three years for standard 
beers, but sometimes they'll sometimes uh, breweries will keep lots around longer than that for other blending and, yeah. and doing specialty beers, or if they've got a good batch that seems to be doing better with age because they'll know their barrels mm -hmm. as they go along. Yeah. Uh, so it might even go longer than that. Um, five years is not unheard of, uh, just in the barrel alone. So all of that happens um, in the barrel. So a brewery doesn't even get lambic that's like really drinkable for until a year, and wow. then you got to have it more years. So this is why this is where the big barrel, the bottleneck is. Right. So yeah. um, <clears throat> most of the the bigger lambic producers and blenders use uh, fooders. So not giant fooders like uh -huh. you might have seen at Rodenbach, but middle sized fooders. Right. But it's also possible to use uh, wine barrels, and and wine barrels are mainly what they use at Cantillon. Uh, okay. So, so let's listen to, uh, as I was visiting with the, the brewers there, they, um, they, they reflected on this whole, uh, uh, aging process and what happens and sort of the essence of, uh, Lambic brewing. So we'll, we'll, maybe we'll go back to back. Well, let's do, um, uh, Frank Bone first, and then we'll do Jean Van Roy next. And we maybe just do them back to back. Okay. We'll come Here back we go. for that. The finest taste esters are built slowly. Mm. It takes time. It takes time, time, time. It's a time-consuming uh, way of making beer. No one, nobody, no brewers on earth can have the same, the same rapport with, with the same, the same feeling with, 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 with his beer, and yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's that's really great. Yeah. Do you feel like the yeast or your collaborator when you open a you taste the beer after a while, you want to see what they've done with it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's... Uh, in French, we have a sentence we say, tout est dans tout. I know if, we, if I translate it so, it's everything. Uh, it's in everything. Uh -huh. But I think that in this brewery, everything is playing a role for the final, in the final product. Okay. Everything. Um, many people have observed what Jean Van Roy uh, observed there, which is that while the initial inoculation gets some of the stuff in there, you're going to get stuff from the brewery, you're going to get stuff from the equipment, you're going to get definitely stuff from the wood. Everything is in everything. Tout est dans tout. Yes. Très bien. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, all of that, all of that contributes to the beer and. Famously, at Cantillon, mm -hmm. uh, they don't disturb even the cobwebs because the cobwebs contain uh, uh, yeast and micro microbiology. Oh, yeah. maybe famous, but I hadn't heard that. That's great. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, awesome. I, <laughs> I took a photo of it because I'd heard that all the time. Uh -huh. and I, when I got there, I thought, I want to see if there's cobwebs. They really have cobwebs. <laughs> and they do, indeed. They do. Huh? Yeah. Uh -huh. And my very crude photo photography did not capture it well, but they were there. Wow. Excellent. Yeah. All right, so a couple of other things that we should talk about is the blending. Uh, we should, but but there's also another bottle of beer here too. So yeah, we, we can. Get to well, that. Uh, one of the things. Let's. It's perfect. It's a perfect time. Uh, I'll let you open this one while I yammer. Oh, lovely. This is a a fruit lambic. Yeah. Okay. Creek. So it's uh, Oud Creek. So Creek just means fruit. Uh, creek means cherry. Cherry. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. Uh, so there's the, the, the two most famous fruit lambics are Creek, which is cherry and, mm -hmm. uh, frambozen or frambois, uh, which is raspberry, raspberry. but oh, you'll nice. find, uh, this company Hansen's does Eau de Biche, which is uh, strawberry 
Um, mm-hmm. Pesh is pretty common for, mm-hmm. with peach, so you find other things in there. Currants, black currants are common. Yeah, that's why, like, early on when I first learned about Belgian beers, uh, it was through a friend who was just enthusiastic. And um, uh, it was all fruited lambics, and so I assumed that that's what lambic was, mm-hmm. fruited. It's the most popular uh, of the lambics uh, because, you know, it's got fruit. So fruit really adds this layer of... Yeah. of uh, perceived sweetness it's actually not very much sweeter with these ode creeks uh ode means made in the traditional way no sugar added and that's critical uh because there are creeks in belgium that are made basically they taste like soda uh and if they have any lambic in them at all it's very tiny amount to add just a tiny bit of acidity one of the producers of these kinds of things is lindemans you can find in the united states yeah and not not a favorite of mine i think these are better, and when you taste, when you put fruit in a lambic, you usually put them in there, in there about a year in, though it'll vary depending on the lambic maker. Um, it will consume all the fermentable sugars, of course, mm-hmm. because there's so many microbiological agents. Yeah, and it leaves the aromatics and the flavor, and not the sugar. Yeah, that's my that's yeah. Usually, my complaint about uh, fruit beers done poorly, in my in my estimation, is when. Uh, there's still too much residual sugar and it's kind of sweet and cloying. Yeah. And I really like the ones that dry. They're really dry and just dry out all that residual sugar and you just left with that sort of pure essence of, of uh, fruit. So this one is sort of a uh, quite red, red to a little bit brown. It's, I was, at first I was going to say it's kind of like a Pinot, but it's not quite that same. More like a deep cap. red. Is, yeah. <laughs> um, and the, and it's, the head roused very pink too. It roused very pink and it, dissipated very quickly it wasn't nearly as effervescent as the other so you were saying that the oud creek oud is oud creek is in my so oud means it's a it's an appellation and it Mm. means uh made in this traditional way um which i can i can describe it's probably not all that critical it has these different benchmarks if you don't see the oud uh you have to be a little bit careful. Some of the classic producers which we'll talk about, like Girardin, this mm-hmm. is not an ode goose because it's not one, two, and three year. It's one, one and a half, and two year. Okay. But it's all blended pure stock. It's 100% lambic. The ode guarantees that you'll get 100% lam- lambic beer. I see. Okay. Not fresh beer, not, right. not, not fake, not blended sweet gross stuff and because so, it's all yeah because it's all aged that means that the sugars are the residual sugar should be gone and you can be pretty safe and especially with creeks and and framboise and other uh beers like that you the ode really guarantees you're getting the real article because the other ones they're just terrible yeah. they can just be they do taste like soda they're yeah. not very good yeah this is really good and did you taste it yes i did sorry i snuck it i was yeah, you did. too tempted <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, no sort of hint of residual cloying sugar. Mm. It's, it's just really dry, very essence of cherry. This one is much more tart and I, it's I'm tart. sensing that it's yeah. picking up some of the tartness from these cherries. Mm. There's a, you know, cause cherries, tart cherries will give their own acidity. Yeah. And, uh, it has a, a little bit of a pie cherries tartness, kind of a bell like mm. clean tartness. A cool thing to, so, um, uh, cherries are one of the few fruits, their skins are uh, really, they stain things really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, strawberries and, and raspberries often will fade. Mm-hmm. So if you buy Odebiche from Hansen's, it, lo- it doesn't look like a fruit beer. Right. 
Um, and even raspberry will will uh, will fade. Mm-hmm. And so the lambic producers usually put just a tiny bit of uh, cherries, just a few cherries in there, to get the, <laughs> just to give it color. Yeah, just to keep the color alive uh, in there. So if you if you buy frambois, you're almost certainly going to get a little bit of creek in it with it. And do you do you know how they use the fruit, and if it's the same across producers, do they? Do they throw whole pitted cherries in? I mean, cherries in there. Do they have cherry puree? How do they? I don't know. Across, I I only visited the two lambic brewers. Okay. I don't know how everybody does it, but typically you throw the whole fruit in there, mm-hmm. and it will um, with pits. With pits, mm-hmm. uh, the pits actually contribute a nice layer of tannin, which helps balance things. Okay. Yeah. Um, That's one of my questions. Yeah, and it will it will completely eat everything. You can put whole fruit in there, and the, it, when you get it, when you when you're done with it, you just have pits. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's interesting. These buggies are they're, they're voracious. They're like little 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 microscopic piranhas. Yeah, they'll take it down. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. I wonder how long that process takes. I think it takes. It's not as long as you'd think. I think it can do it in a few months. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. interesting. And so they have just like a, a residual sludge of pits in the bottom, and they. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So let's the last little bit of, we should talk about here, mm-hmm. and it's relevant both to creeks and and just regular gurs. Yeah. Is uh, and by the way, the pronunciation of gurs is something it Americans often say goose, uh-huh. which is not correct. Um, I often say gurs, which is not correct. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere in between there, but it's closer to gurs than it is to Goose. G- yeah, goose. yeah. It's it's there's the R is very prevalent. So uh-huh. most 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 Americans and. Uh, I listened back to the, through these tapes and, and heard both Jean and, and Frank say that again to just remind myself because Americans are so quick to call it mm-hmm. goose. So anyway, uh, I mentioned that. Um, anyway, the 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 blending is it's important good because for all we of want us. our listeners to sound like they know what they're talking. That's about. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Except, and I need to I, I, because I'm such an outlier here. I'm starting to feel like I was pronouncing it wrong. So I was glad to hear these guys back me up. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the blending is really important uh, because the final composition of the beer is a product of all these different barrels. Yeah. And so you'll have a batch of beer that'll go in, uh, you'll, they'll brew on one day and it'll be too big to fit in one barrel or even one, f- uh, fooder. So they'll put it in, in two or three, mm-hmm. that beer in those different fooders will taste different, right? It, because the microbiology inside the barrel, right. It'll just develop differently. Yeah. So when it comes time to blend these things, they're looking at lots, uh, by age and also just by the barrels and they compose them. Like one will have a, maybe a, uh, really fruity character. One will be very dry, and they're trying to find, say, their three-year-old batch. They're trying to find a blend of three-year-old that they can blend with two and one-year-old, so that those three elements are all harmonious. Um, yeah, and blending is such an art. It's it's fascinating. A, it's a huge art, and in these beers, it's almost the whole game. Mm-hmm. And there's a fascinating thing to know about the whole lambic deal, and that is that. Uh, a lot of the famous names, like this Hansons, don't mm. actually have breweries. They buy inoculated work from other mm. brewers, and they're called blenders. Mm-hmm. And in Belgium, blenders are considered every bit uh, as credible as brewers. And the, there's not a huge distinction made between a blender and a brewer. Right. Because right. Um, the the quality that they produce uh, will so happen in the in the barrel. Yeah, it's equivalent to winemakers who buy grapes from vineyards. That's right. They don't have their own vineyard, but they can make perfectly good wine, yeah. Yeah, and, Interesting. Uh, and and Frank Bone, who is one of the bigger producers, often sells his wort to some of these other guys. So you'll find his, probably in this Hanson's, is some Frank Bone's wort. So for a creek like this, you would have one barrel that has 
the cherry the cherries in it and then you'd blend it with non-cherry stuff or is it all cherry stuff you know what i mean Ooh, yeah like, that's a good question i i don't actually know the answer to that. i think it's all cherry okay yeah in america i didn't ask that question when i was there uh in america when people do fruited wild beers they'll they will not blend it with non-fruited okay Interesting. you want that intense flavor that we're getting out of this yeah right that's true it would kind of water it down so to speak hmm. So we have one more quote from Jean Van Roy about yes, blending. About blending, and he talks a little bit about the uh, the uh, the feng shui or the <laughs> I don't know the mysticism of blending. So let's listen to him. Okay. It, it depends. I, I taste first my my old lembic, and it depends of my old beer. So uh, if I have a, a mellow lembic with with uh, a soft beer uh, with some some mellowness. I can work with uh, two and one years old with more more character. If I have a, a old beer with character, mm-hmm. uh, I have to find other types of beers for the for the for the for the young one. It's it's each each blend is different. Another way these beers are different, as Sean says, is each blend is different. They're like wine. Like mm-hmm. you used that example a minute ago. That's a really great. Uh, observation they they you know uh, cantillon uh, uh goes is going to taste different depending on the vintage because he's got different lots to work with yeah so there's yeah. a terroir element and um there's an age element all these kind of blending element all these different elements they'll all taste recognizable a mm-hmm. cantillon is very different than bone cantillons is much more citrusy mm-hmm. much brighter um uh, uh yeah it's got, it's got the, a lot of really tropical qualities and it's uh, the the acidity is a little bit sharper uh so that those characters are always going to be evident but um uh they'll taste different batch to batch yeah so so, so if you buy <clears throat> one bottle and then six months later buy another it might be quite different yeah not, i wouldn't say quite different but you wouldn't expect it to taste the same exactly in the way the same, that if you yeah. bought a uh you know a a breakside IPA one day and a breakside IPA the next day. You yeah. expect them to taste the same. Yeah, which, by the way, makes me think of the recent blog post you you put, which was uh, a quote from um, John Keeling at yeah. Fuller's, yeah. which is talking about having a relationship with beer, and he was talking about how Fuller's will recreate uh, one of their beers, in this case, London Pride, and it never is exactly the same beer. Uh, each batch is slightly different, and it's one of the things that he likes, sort of, you, you think about what particularly characterizes this current batch versus other batches. And uh, it really makes you think of beer as much more than just a kind of standardized industrial product, which he, which he sort of contrasts what Fuller's is to something like Budweiser. Yeah. Yeah. This is, if you drew a continuum, you'd have Budweiser on one side and you'd have these Lambics on the other. And Cascale would be definitely on the Lambic side, not on the Budweiser side. Yeah. And he makes a great point, which is you can get consistent if you if all you really care about is completely consistent beer you can get it but what you sacrifice is flavor so yeah. if you really want flavor then you have to accept the fact that it's not going to be entirely consistent so in this case of course this is an extreme because you're blending each time out of barrels and um we we traveled to uh corvallis i'm sure when we do our future podcast on on spontaneous fermentation fermentation we'll uh we'll discuss this but nick garvesner who's down there at block 15 brewery um had started this huge barrel aging aging program and um i was just blown away by sort of how each barrel has its own characteristic and in his mind are all these different barrels with all these different 
particular characteristics in his art is thinking about how they all blend together into something that he wants and this a finished product so yeah it's really neat yeah and nick nick does make spontaneous beer and we'll i've got some tape from him um and it's interesting he he's kind of a traditionalist so his his spontaneous beer looks quite a bit like uh the belgians he's really he does a turbid mash and Mm -hmm. um he but it's not all the same there's he does something different the cool ship um so it's interesting it's and interesting you'll learn about it in nice. a future podcast that's right. that's <laughs> stay a, tuned that's a, that's a teaser <laughs> <laughs> all right well good well this has been um really fascinating i've learned a lot <clears throat> uh so maybe you can um talk a little bit about sort of what are the what are the kinds of lambics that people can find in the united states what yeah. what characterizes them and what you recommend yeah, we talked about uh, maybe doing this in place of Sherpa, which is good since neither of us had a Sherpa prepared. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, yeah, so the ones that... So let's start with what you can actually find because mm-hmm. you can't find all of these very well. Cantillon, you used to be able to find much more readily and uh, he's become a rock star, so it's harder to find Cantillon. Yeah, and there's demand all around the world for these beers, so they're no. hard, to, yeah. hard to scrounge. That's right. So Cantillon, I've already described a little bit. If you can find it, he may, he also makes a, a much broader range of different products. He has one that's actually got some uh, regular hops. It's got a little hop character. Mm-hmm. He does uh, different strengths. He uses different fruits. So he does a lot of different stuff. Yeah, and, that, that's one thing, by the way. You would be hard-pressed to really identify a hop flavor in these in these beers. I oh, think. yeah. They're designed <laughs> to not have hops. Yeah, so. So. yeah he, has, he has one that's a hopped beer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Bone is the one that you're going to find the most of. He is the biggest producer, and his beer gets over here. We tried on a different podcast, Mariage Parfait. Mm-hmm. That's yep. a classic Guz. Uh, he's got um, a regular Guz. He's got uh, Creeks and other things, so you can find those around. Mm-hmm. Um, Girardin you can get here. You can you could describe that. I, th- I think Girardin is one of the more uh, balanced and less expressive uh, examples. It's mm-hmm. a little bit more subtle and sophisticated than some of the others, which mm-hmm. can be um, sharper and more characterful. Right. And in this case, there's not a criticism of Girard, and I think they do a really nice job. Yeah. Of kind of an understated one. Yeah. Um, so Lindemann's is a brand that you see everywhere. You, you see, see Lindemann's everywhere, yes. Yeah. So you have to be careful with Lindemann's. Most of the products that you'll find are made with uh, their blends. So they have regular beer, um, and the, the the amount of lambic in them is very low mm-hmm. proportionally, and they'll use sweet sweet sweetened fruits. So if you buy the pesh or the the creeks lindemans, you're going to find um, that that's you're, you're going to find these really sweet products. Right. They do have one beer called uh, Cuvée Rene, which is a their their Ode Goose, and it's top notch. It's really good. It's hard to find, but. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> If you have put Lindemans in the doghouse, you have to put an asterisk next to it for that. Right, right. Uh, Mort Subit is another one that you can find fairly regularly, uh, and they do good stuff. They're also, I would put them kind of in the Girardin category of a little bit milder one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dre Fontenin um, is one of the m- more popular ones among Americans, mm-hmm. uh, partly because uh, Armand de Beller, de Beller is... Uh, a really cool guy and uh-huh. he is a great spokesman for that that beer but it is quite characterful and if you can find it it's interesting it is also in the Cantillon category of um uh it has citrus notes and expressive kind of spiky flavors uh-huh. um but it also has a weird kind of note of, of saline or brine that i find very particular and, and really really nice um 
that brewery, it was a brewery, and then um, they had a a problem at the brew house where the the heating failed and it mm. destroyed all their beer. Huh. And uh, he was for some years only a blender, right. but then he got his new brewery installed through partly through crowdfunding, and he's back in the game. So ah, he's, he's back. So that's cool. Um, you can find Hansons quite often. They are a blender. So there's some of these others are blenders. Mm-hmm. Uh, you find um, Old Beersel, though they're fairly, I mean, fairly common. <laughs> uh, uh, common to the extent that you can find them. Mm-hmm. Um, Decam, I've never seen in the United States. Um, it's really an obscure one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Tilquin is the, is the newest one. That, that, it's only opened in the last uh, maybe 10 years that mm-hmm. Tilquin has been around. That's another blender. And you do find a little bit of Tilquin. Um, I would say it's a young man who started it. It's it. He has not quite developed the skill in blending that some of the older producers have done. Mm-hmm. So it's not quite as refined. You find all the flavors in place. They're just maybe not quite as harmonious. Right. Um, but he's getting better and uh, definitely a brewer, uh, blender to watch. Interesting. So those are kind of your range. Um, there's, a, there's a brewery called Timmermans that you'll see. And they're like uh, Lindemann's. Most of their stuff is crappy. <laughs> so... Uh, you just be careful. Buyer beware. Buyer beware. Yeah, they're regular. They have a lot of fruited lambics, and they're not really anything to do with lambic. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All, all good good advice. Yeah. Um, and I really recommend the Gers. I think the as a style, the Eau Gers, uh, or, or any blend that, that qualifies as a Gers that's made with um, all lambic, even if like this Girardin that we had today, mm-hmm. I really do think that they're... Some of the most accomplished beers made in the world. Yeah. So yeah, very complex, really interesting beers to drink. Yeah. We well, love good. all beers, but boy, I sure admire the really well-made lambics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I've become uh, the big fan largely through your introduction to all this um, great beer. Yeah. So thanks for that. So um, that takes the place of our our beer stripper this week. Um, our mail our mail bag is is devoid of mail because uh, it took us so long to get this uh, uh, pod out. So my my apologies for that. But uh, hopefully we can get back to our two week uh, schedule now um, as things start coming down in my home front. So yeah, and again the underscore beer axe at yahoo.com Beer axe is b e beer a x. <laughs> I got confused with the two, the E's in the middle there. The regular number of beers in beer. Uh, anyway, send us an email. Uh, yeah. Questions, ask, comments, suggestions. That's right. Uh, insults, whatever. We'll take it. We'll take anything. We'll take it all. Requests for future shows, whatever you got. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, thanks for listening to the podcast. Um, Jeff just mentioned uh, the beer acts at yahoo.com. That's the best way to get in touch with us. But there's also the uh, 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 Beervana blog and the beervana blog facebook page two separate things yes uh, but the beervana blog pa- facebook page is another good way to get in touch uh jeff of course blogs at beervana blogs at all about beer thanks to all about beer for hosting us uh you can find me occasionally <laughs> blogging at uh, beeronomics and tweeting at, at beeronomics um but yeah please do please do get in touch um let us know uh and um we'll talk to you next time so until then in Belgium, you say? Uh, cheers. Oh, cheers. I, know, I, I don't know. I should, yeah. I should have prepared. Well, we also talk uh, about France. We're talking about France. So France, you say salut, right? Yeah, yeah so, salut. Salut. Uh, in, it's, it's French. They speak French there. Oh, so we're talking about the French part of Belgium, by the way. That's a good point. Actually, it's right on the line. So uh, if, you, if you notice that uh, 
Jean Van Roy has a Dutch name but speaks French. Yes. This is typical in Belgium. It's right on the line. So there's Dutch in Belgium, or Flemish in Belgium, uh, about, and French. And what about there. Frank Bone? He's, that's a... Frank Bone. That's a very uh, Flemish, Flemish name. Okay. Uh, and he... Uh, he seems to be natively a Flemish speaker. Okay, well, I don't know how to say cheers in Flemish, but I do know everything. I think it's Prost. I think it's just Prost. In Flemish, really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, something close to that. Prost-it, maybe? I don't Prost. know. Something like <laughs> something, that. Something guttural. In it. And I'm losing all credibility because I can't remember. But it's an yeah. old brain. Give me, Cut me some slack. Nobody, nobody's invited me to Belgium recently enough for me to remember this. Hear, hear, that, hear that, Belgian brewers? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> book, book him now because... <laughs> He's going to be in even greater demand. All right. Uh, well, uh, salut, Jeff. Salut.